If you want to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 4, we're going to nerd today. For all of you guys who like slept through high school, today is your day of redemption. Okay, we're going to nerd for a little while. It's going to be awesome. Luke chapter 4. Father, as we turn to your word, we love it. We trust your word. It's bread to us. We ask that you'd give us soft hearts, moldable hearts. Help us to obey what you've written, what's been given, and we trust you. May we be better disciples of Jesus in the days to come. And all God's people said amen. Amen. All right, you guys ready to nerd? Say yes. All right. Bunch of C students. Here we go. (laughs) If you're not familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls were... um, Actually, a really important discovery in the last century. In the year 1947, a group of Bedouin shepherds were walking kind of north of the Dead Sea. And one of the shepherds did what men do. They threw a rock into a cave because that, again, we just like to throw stuff. Um, And so he threw a rock into a cave. And when he threw a rock into a cave, he heard a great shatter. What ensued was probably, if not the greatest, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of the last century. What was found in, in... what's called Cave One, were jars of scrolls. Eventually, they would continue uh, to search caves around this area called Qumran, and um, there ended up being something like 900 to 1,200 scrolls that were hidden in these caves. Now, essentially, what they found was a hidden library. What we know about these scrolls is that they belong to a Jewish sect who we call the Essenes. The Essenes were these kind of monastic people who lived in the desert. They thought that the Sadducees were political and after money, and so they were not fans of the Sadducees. They thought the Pharisees um, leaned too much on oral tradition and not on um, what they believed was historic traditional Judaism. And so they rejected the Pharisees, and they decided, because they actually believed that there was a false priesthood established at the temple, they decided to leave um, all together and to go live in the desert, these group of Essenes. Now, there's one document in early church history that says that John the Baptist spent time with the Essenes. We know that John the Baptist's parents died when he was really young, and I think there's actually some good evidence, or at least some good reasons to believe that John the Baptist might have been around, discipled by, influenced by this group of people called the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were really apocalyptic, meaning... They were kind of waiting for Messiah, waiting for the end of the world. They referred to themselves as the sons of light. And when all was said and done, they would be in a battle with the sons of darkness. Now, so what we have is a library of text from these people called the Essenes, found in uh, north of the Dead Sea called Qumran. And most of these texts date around the year 200 BC. Okay, why that's fascinating is because this. The Old Testament was finished being written around the year 400 B.C., right? You guys with me? And we have this period we sometimes call the 400 years of silence. In between the conclusion of Malachi and the opening of the Gospels, we have this kind of 400-year dead period. Now, what the Dead Sea Scrolls did was it opened up for us um, a library of texts, most of them dated between 100 and 200 B.C., right in the middle of what we call the silent period. What we have there is a group of documents that these people who are waiting for Messiah gathered and collected 
eventually hid as as Jerusalem was under a, as Israel as a whole was under attack. Um, so it's interesting because we can kind of find thought and ideas dated around the year 200 BC. Are you guys with me so far as to why that's interesting? Um, okay. So the most common thing in the Dead Sea Scrolls most people have heard of is called the Isaiah Scroll. Um, so in the Dead Sea Library, we had every book of the Old Testament represented. Most of it is just fragments. So when we say we have 900 to 1200 scrolls, there's thousands of fragments because the, the documents obviously broke up. But the book of Isaiah is almost altogether intact. And that's, that's really fascinating and scholars have used this as a, an apologetic and an argument for evangelism because this, um, a lot of times people who are unbelievers will say, the Bible has been passed through so many hands, it has to be corrupt. Have you ever heard that argument? Like, through the generations, the Bible was changed and twisted and turned. Well, what was fascinating about the Isaiah scroll being entirely intact is that the Isaiah scroll was essentially exactly what we have when we call the book of Isaiah today. So in other words, when people try to say, and Mormons say this, I've used this argument with Mormons at my door for years. Um, when they try to say, like, we believe the Bible, but we know that the Bible was corrupt, then the argument back would be, well, we have Isaiah from 200 B.C., and it's exactly what we have today. It's not corrupt. Like, if the text I have in my hand today is exactly what was found at the Dead Sea 200 years before Christ, what that teaches is that there's been a faithful transmission of the Scriptures throughout the generations, not a, tra- a twisting and a turning of the of Scriptures. So Isaiah scroll was super interesting because it helped us argue that the Bible we have today is the Bible that was being read and taught in Jesus' day. Okay, does that make sense? So in a lot of ways, that's where Christianity stopped with the Dead Sea Scrolls. We kind of stopped thinking, writing, um, reading about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But in that library of 900 scrolls, there were also some other texts found. These other texts were never considered to be canonical, meaning that the books found with the Bible would be like if, you know, we all died in a great volcano um, and thousand years later someone found my office back here. Okay, you would find my Bibles, you would find what I believe to be scripture, and then you would find a lot of teaching on the Bible, you would find, there's all kinds of things in my library. There's some like ridiculous things that I don't believe in that library as well. Um, and so it's kind of the same idea. What we found in their libraries uh, was scripture, which they believed to be canonical, but then we found a lot of teaching and other prophecy and other writing, and that opened up some interesting facets of thought. For instance, in Cave 1 and in Cave 4, there were found what scholars call the War Scrolls. The War Scrolls, again, this group of people 200 years before Jesus living in the desert, the War Scrolls were these kind of end-time prophecies. And they talk about the sons of light, which they believe to be sons of light, going to battle with the sons of darkness. Sometimes Michael the archangel comes and fights with them, but it's 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 very much kind of end-time Armageddon-ish found in the War Scrolls. Um, what What is taught in the Dead Sea Scrolls, what's often found is that in what they they have like a community rule or a, a list of documents that explain how you're to live in the community. And in the community rule and in several other places, we find that the Essenes were looking for at times 
two separate messiahs. Okay, this is taught throughout Jewish history, but it's, it's interesting, so hang with me here. 200 BC, they're waiting for the end of the world or the messiah to come, and they're expecting two different messiahs. One messiah is called the messiah of Aaron, or the priestly messiah. So this community looked at the scriptures, and they saw in Isaiah 53 that the messiah would be wounded and crushed for the transgressions of the world. They saw in Zechariah 12 that the messiah would be pierced. They thought about Abraham and Isaac the same way that we would think about Abraham and Isaac, that there would be a sacrifice from God that would atone for sins. And these people decided that one Messiah must be priestly in nature and would die for sins. And then they wrote that there was a second Messiah, oftentimes called the Davidic Messiah. Now, the Davidic Messiah obviously would be the king who would establish justice and righteousness and and bring peace militarily to the earth. And so what we find in several documents in the caves, um, especially in the community rule, is this expectation for two messiahs. You guys with me so far? Two messiahs, that's found throughout Jewish tradition at times. The, The messiah of Aaron and the messiah of David. The messiah that would bleed and the messiah that would reign. Now, there's another document that's super interesting, and this is where I'm going. Um... It's called 11Q13, or 11Q Melchizedek. The 11 stands for cave 11, Q stands for Qumran, 13. It was the 13th document found. Or 11Q Melchizedek, the, the, the document writes about Melchizedek. Um, now, you, can you guys hang with me for a second? I know you're like, we didn't come for this today. Get over it. Um, Melchizedek, the text of Melchizedek, Sean, do you have a picture of it back there, or Ralph? If you don't, it's not a big deal. Um, it's super fragmented. Okay, here it is. Um, this is a piece of it. There's more than this. So this is essentially what was found, right? Like a fragment of a document. Um, there are other pieces. That's kind of the biggest chunk. Melchizedek 11Q13 is super fragmented. There are lots of holes that scholars kind of have to fill in and think about and shift around. Um, but what was essentially... The narrative given in Melchizedek was a prophecy. Now, this prophecy is looking for Messiah, and it continually calls Messiah Melchizedek. Now, that's interesting for us because the book of Hebrews says that Messiah was after the order of Melchizedek, right? You guys remember that? If you read your scriptures, Psalm 110 says that the Lord would, would anoint the Messiah, make him sit down in his right hand. And the Lord has sworn and has not changed his mind that forever this king would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, go with me here. This is really interesting because Melchizedek, you remember what we find in in the early chapters of Genesis. What we find about Melchizedek is that when Abraham kind of, uh, he goes out into this valley where there's been this great battle of kings. Nine kings have went to battle. Abraham really doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, but the, sect, the, the group of kings that win the battle, they rob and they plunder the other kings, including Sodom. Okay, And when these kings who win battle, they plunder Sodom, they take all of the goods and all of the people. What they take when they take Sodom was Abraham's nephew, Lot, who was living in Sodom at the time. You remember? Um, and so... Abraham now arises up with 300 of his servants, and he pursues these kings. He overtakes them. He takes all of the plunder. 
Because Abraham's trying to, to steal back his nephew Lot. Now, after Abraham's had victory over these kings, we get this really strange scene where Abraham is meeting with two separate kings. On one hand, he's meeting with the king of Sodom, and, and, and the king of Sodom obviously is getting ready to be destroyed by fire, okay? We can assume that dude's a little wicked. Um, the other king who comes out to meet Abraham is super mysterious. His name is Melchizedek, and the scripture calls him the king of Salem. Now, most scholars believe that that was like pre-Jerusalem. So, Melchizedek, the scripture calls the priest of the Most High God. Okay, just hang with me. Some of you guys might need to listen to this four times. Um, the scripture calls Melchizedek the priest of the Most High God. Now, that's fascinating because Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons, who we call the tribes of Israel. Uh, Levi, Jacob's son Levi, birthed the first priesthood. So now we have a priest of the Most High, generations, hundreds of years before there was ever a priesthood in Israel. You, you guys following that? So this is a pre-priest priest named Melchizedek. And this pre-priest priest rules over Jerusalem, most likely. And what he does for Abraham is really weird. He comes bringing bread and wine. So now we have a pre-priest priest serving a pre-communion communion to Abraham. And, it, and, and there's this great mystery, like, where did this dude come from? And... Abraham, remember, tithes to Melchizedek. And the scripture in Hebrews argues that that tithe was a proof that Melchizedek was the greater. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So now we have a pre-priest priest serving pre-communion communion to Abraham, who is the, the king of Salem. And when David goes to prophesy in Psalm 110 about Messiah, David said that this um, Messiah would be, God swears that forever this Messiah would be a priest, but he wouldn't be a priest after the order of Aaron or Levi, but he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. After this mysterious pre-priest man who serves pre-communion. And so, go with me now. I know I'm making big arguments right now, big thoughts. So what we have 200 years before Christ was born was a group of people living in the desert waiting for Messiah. And if you can imagine a group of people living in the desert waiting for Messiah, they've thought about Psalm 110. And so they're thinking, what does it mean when the scripture says Messiah would be after the order of Melchizedek? They're thinking about Melchizedek as they sit in the desert 200 years before Jesus, and there's this document written, who we're not arguing is authoritative at all. It's just, it just shows us the thought processes of these people. There's this document written, we call 11Q13, or 11Q Melchizedek, in which they are anticipating the Messiah to come, and they keep referring to the Messiah as Melchizedek in this document. Now, this document makes several really interesting claims. It claims, and I want to say right off the bat, there are two veins of scholarship referring to this document. My opinion really doesn't matter, but I want to show you kind of just some basic things found in the document and the way that some thought goes. Um, so I'm not trying to make a big statement as if I know what I'm talking about. Just showing you research. The document claims that when Melchizedek comes, he will bring jubilee. Now, um, do you have this quote from the document back there? I can't see if it's Ralph or Sean. Start. Um, it's Ralph. Come on, Ralph. Freestyle for us real quick. 
Um, do you have the proclaimed jubilee to the captives quote back there, Ralph? It's okay if you don't. Okay. The text says, 11Q13, when Melchizedek comes, he will proclaim the jubilee to the captives. As from the inheritance of Melchizedek, who will return to them what is rightfully theirs. He will proclaim to them the jubilee, thereby releasing them, listen to this, from the debt of all their sins. Hold on. Melchizedek will come in this document. He will proclaim jubilee. Now, you remember jubilee in in Mosaic law? Jubilee was every 50 years, all the slaves were to be set free. All property was to be returned. So imagine if your family was hard up for cash, you had an awful season, someone got sick, and you couldn't afford to, to, to live life, and so you sold your land to a neighbor so that you could have cash to feed your kids, and you ended up being indentured servants or slaves trying to provide for yourself. This Jubilee teaches that that hardship can last for a season. But after every 50 years, there's a year of Jubilee in which your land has to be returned to you. And you get to go home. And if you're a slave, you get to be set free. And so Jubilee is this idea that every 50 years, in the natural, those people who are slaves, living outside of their homes, indentured servants, they are to be set free and restored to their proper place in society. So it's twofold. They're set free from their bondage, and they are restored to their proper position. There's a liberty and a restoration that happens at Jubilee. You guys with me? Okay, what's really interesting is that in this text, Jubilee is not just a natural event in which slaves are free, but Jubilee is a period in which Melchizedek sets us free from the guilt of our sins. So this document, it's interpreting Isaiah 61, and I'll show you this in a second. It's interpreting Jubilee with a deeper spiritual understanding, which says that Jubilee is not just about getting your land again, but Jubilee is about getting free from the guilt of your sins and finding liberty not just in the natural in society, but finding liberty in the place of your soul. So it says, thereby Melchizedek will release them from the debt of their sins. Listen to this. Also, this is again, 11Q13, also he will deliver all the captives from the power of Belial. Belial is just a term for Satan. So um, you remember Paul says, what does Christ have to do with Belial? So now, Jubilee is interpreted in this document to be not just a natural liberty or a natural being set free, but a spiritual one in which you're delivered from your sin and your guilt, and you're not delivered from your oppressor in the natural, you're delivered from Satan. So the expectation, 200 years before Christ, for some, I'm not arguing that all the people believe this, but certainly some were looking for the day in which a priest after the order of Melchizedek would come and declare the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was not just a natural deliverance, but it was a spiritual deliverance in which you got free from your deepest kind of slavery, the slavery to sin and the slavery to Satan. Okay, and they're drawing all those conclusions, or at least they're leaning really heavily on um, Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 2, which we're going to read today, Jesus quoting in the synagogue. So, again, let me just repeat what we got going on. 100 to 200 years before the coming of Jesus, in the silent period, archaeologists have found a document called 11Q13 or 11Q Melchizedek, in which they're anticipating the coming of 
a man after the order of Melchizedek who will declare jubilee to get them free, not just in the natural, but from their sin and from Satan. And there's a portion in Melchizedek where it calls Melchizedek your Elohim or your God. There's a whole different argument about that. But it could be that they even expected Melchizedek to be divine. Now, now that changes what you believe about messianic expectation or messianic hope. So I want you to like imagine yourself, sit your butt down in Qumran, north of the Dead Sea, 200 BC, reading this document, pondering the day when you get free, not in the natural, but you get free from sin and from Satan, when a man after the order of Melchizedek, who could be divine, declares to you jubilee. That's a, that's a, that's a fascinating discovery. Like, wildly fascinating discovery. Okay, now let me read to you from Luke chapter 4, and I want to show you Jesus referring to the same text that they're referring to in 11Q13, and Jesus interpreting that text to be about himself and saying, I am the one who brings jubilee. And Jesus interpreting Isaiah also to mean that the jubilee that I bring is not just in the natural getting your land back, but the jubilee that I bring is healing to the deepest places of your souls. Now, the expectation in this waiting period is is for Messiah to bring total and complete liberty, freedom. You guys with me so far? Okay, let me read you the text, and then I'll try to unpack this for you. 11, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 22. He, being Jesus, he comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's just a biblical kind of idiom for the idea of jubilee. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim the jubilee. Verse 20, Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son. Now, obviously, this passage comes very early in the ministry of Jesus. We're in Luke chapter 4, after all. Okay, so in the early portion of Jesus' ministry, this is right after he's been led in the wilderness and tempted by Satan. The scripture says that he, he came out of that temptation full of the Spirit's power, man. And the, the first thing he does is he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, and verse 16 tells us he goes to the synagogue in his hometown as was his custom. Now, if you think this through just for a minute, that means that Jesus kind of went to his home church where people knew him, they watched him grow up, they knew his parents, they had seen him for years. Jesus at this point is roughly 30 years old, and for the last 30 years his life has kind of been I think there's obviously some reasons to believe there were lots of supernatural things that happened surrounding uh, not only his birth, but other portions of his life. Um, at 12 years old, he's kind of a scholar already. That's not normal. Um, 
his life has kind of been normal. He's been a carpenter, right? He's just doing the work that his dad did. Kind of a mundane, normal life. Now at the age of 30, he walks into his home church. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And he turns to this portion of scripture that 11Q13 keeps quoting to talk about Messiah. And he begins to read. The first thing he reads is, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is basically what it means to be the Christ. The Christ is the anointed one. The Christ is the one in which the Spirit has chosen or or descended upon, who rests upon. The Christ means anointed. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus reads, is upon me. Isaiah verses chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. And so part of Isaiah's prophecy is that one day there would be a descendant of Jesse, who's the father of David, who would come, bear good fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. In Isaiah 61, we find a quotation from this anointed one. Jesus reads it and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's a, that's a claim to messianic function. That's a claim to identity. And he says, because that Spirit has anointed me to do what? You could run to the Spirit's anointed me to heal. The Spirit's anointed me to deliver. That's not what the text says. The text says the Spirit has anointed me to proclaim. 200 BC, we have a group of Essenes, a group of people living in the wilderness waiting for the year of Jubilee. And the scripture says, Jesus reads Isaiah 61 and says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the implication of the text. To proclaim the year of Jubilee. And then he expounds upon all the things that will take place in this new period of Jubilee. He says, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim. Again, that's a reference to the 50-year cycle where people are restored to their former property and restored to their proper positions in society in which Judaism had begun to interpret with a prophetic lens, meaning that the Jubilee was not just about getting your land, but it was about getting your stinking heart back from the grips of Satan. It was about being free from shame and guilt. Jubilee was not just liberty from natural oppression, but it was liberty from satanic and demonic bondage. It was a return to real life and wholeness in God. That was the interpretation that Isaiah produced. So Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, rests upon me at my baptism. The dove, the Spirit descended and stayed upon me, and it came upon me to declare to you jubilee. This was messianic expectation. So then he lists out all the things that are going to happen in this age of Jubilee. Good news to the poor. The poor, those outliers in society, the downtrodden, the desperate. And if you kind of read this with with the understanding that Isaiah and Jesus don't just intend for all of this to be understood in the natural, you think about Jesus saying, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, the The desperation here that's wrapped up in the idea of poor is not just about your finances. It is include, it does include finances, but it also includes a spiritual state of total brokenness, emptiness, and desperation. 
good news will be proclaimed to those who are totally broken and desperate. He will bind up the brokenhearted. The year of Jubilee that Jesus proclaims brings a binding up of brokenhearted men and women. Has anyone in the room been brokenhearted? Anyone in the room looked at your past and your history and your life and you've been so grieved by your own wickedness and your own failures and your own shortcomings and you shoulda, coulda, woulda done things different and you're just totally broken. That's where I was when the Spirit of the Lord came to me. Totally brokenhearted, grieved. The Spirit of the Lord to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which will bring liberty to the captives. Again, the captives are those who are naturally in bondage. There's a natural understanding here that, that for instance, slavery um, is really done away with as the gospel of Christ is preached. Slavery is driven back as the ideas of Genesis are proclaimed that all men and women are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Um, natural slavery is broken as Jesus proclaims this gospel, but even more so, there is a spiritual slavery in which all of humanity has been bound by sin, guilt, and shame. And you've been just enticed back again and again to your pride, enticed again and again to your arrogance. Some of you keep going to alcohol, and for years you wish you could quit this habit, but it binds you, it owns you. Your sexual desires have enslaved you. Scripture says that at the year of Jubilee, people will be liberated from that kind of slavery. A recovery of sight to the blind. Absolutely, in Jubilee, in the age of the gospel, there's an anointing to heal the sick. Where people who have physical ailments encounter the power of the Spirit and find sight, find the ability to walk where there once was lameness, find the ability to hear where there once was Deafness. There is a part of this proclamation that declares there is now an age of the power of the Spirit where physical healing will be manifested to the sick. And then there's a part of this declaration that says spiritual blindness will be healed. Some of you are, like me, unable to see the goodness of God. Unable to perceive the faithfulness of God to the generation just totally blinded by your own spiritual dullness and darkness. You had so believed the lies of the enemies for year after year after year, you were deceived and manipulated and bound up year after year after year. Your mindset, your perspective, your spiritual understanding was darkened by demonic entities and the lies of this world. And in one moment, Jesus turns the lights on. In one hour, Jesus will proclaim to you, Sight. There will be liberty to the oppressed. Those taken advantage of. Those whose humanity has been overlooked. Those who have become pawns in, in the schemes of, of others. There will, be, there will be liberty to the oppressed. So Jesus reads this prophecy. And then he says to his hometown. This is really funny. Because if you can imagine like going to the church that you grew up in where this person saw you in diapers and saw your toddler and your, your youth years, you know, the years where you had acne and you were really awkward, saw all of that. And Jesus reads the text. He looks at the crowd in the face and he says, today it's fulfilled. In other words, the hour of jubilee 
which people have been longing for, aching for, for centuries. The hour of anticipation. Today has arrived. You can stop your waiting. You can stop your looking. You can stop your pondering and dreaming. Today, Jubilee is declared to you. Today, there's access to real liberty and freedom and life and healing. And today, there's access to new creation. Today, there's access to intimacy with the Father who made you. Today, there's access to life and life abundantly. Now is Jubilee. And the crowd kind of stares and wonders, isn't this Joseph's son? This man, isn't, isn't he this kid who grew up in our midst and makes chairs and builds houses? Isn't he the carpenter? This man who to the eye looks totally normal, to the spirit, creates this incredible draw to the spirit in their hearts. They start to go, what in the world is this? The time which was pondered about and thought about in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 11Q13, when, when there would be a priest, who someone who would shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, and yet would deliver from captivity. Jesus reads the text, they're pondering, out loud to his hometown, and he says, this text is now fulfilled. Jubilee, you are free. Not only free from your oppressor, but restored to your proper position of value and life. Not only are you now free from the guilt and shame and sin, but you are free to live like a son or daughter created in the image of God. Jubilee, Jesus says, is now. All of your anticipation, all of your waiting. Now, give me just a few more minutes. I'm starting to sweat. Give me just a few more seconds. Imagine yourself again. Just go with me. Imagine you you are a Jew living in Israel, I don't know, in David's day. Puts you in, in like the Davidic dynasty. And you grow sick, like really sick. And you can't work anymore. I don't know if you know this, there was no all state, okay? Like nobody's, no insurance providing you food uh, or money. Nobody had insurance. You can't work anymore, so you're poor. You're now officially lame. So all you can do when you're poor and you can't work is what? Start selling stuff. So you start selling stuff. You sell your family home. At first, and you live off that for a while, and then you sell some acreage that was allotted to your father and his father. It's literally your inheritance. You start selling it off. And then eventually, you've got to like sell yourself and your labor, whatever you can do to work for someone else. So now you're a slave, and you've lost your family home, and you've lost your family property, and you've lost your inheritance. So you're in this place of total desperation. But you know that the law says when the year of Jubilee comes, everything has to be given back to you. So 20 years out, you start to tell your kids, just 20 more years, man, and then we'll, we'll be back and you're in the house you're, my father built for us. Just 10 more years. Just wait 10 more years and you won't have to scrub anybody else's shoes. Five more years. And we're going to possess, you're going to have room to run. You're going to see the farm that I grew up on and the kind of the things that we built to play. Five more years and you're going to get to play where I played as a kid. Just five more years and Jubilee's right around the corner. Two more years. And imagine the anticipation. Like, I don't have to be a slave. In two years, I get free. In two years, I get land. In two years, I get to sleep in my own bed again. One year, I'm counting down the days. And spiritually speaking, this is the anticipation for the gospel to be released. 
that all of humanity is longing for a real hour of release. And so in the desert, there are these men. They don't want to live in the city because they're frustrated with the religiosity of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they live in the desert, and they're, they're kind of counting down the days. They're telling their kids, one day Melchizedek will come. One day there will be a Messiah who will bleed for us, and you'll be set free, not from your bonds, but from sin. One day, kids, you're going to be free from the guilt of sin. And they're telling their kids, and, and one day you're going to be free from Belial. One day Satan's grip on your life your insecurities, the lies that you believe. One day God will bring total truth and illumination to your minds and you're going to have liberty five more years, ten more years. They're, they're counting, they're anticipating, they're waiting. There's this great longing for jubilee. Jesus comes out of the wilderness where he's just argued down the devil. He reads the text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim Good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the year. I don't know if you know this, but year indicates a time. The year of the Lord's favor, the hour of jubilee. Jesus rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the leader of the synagogue and says, today is the day. Now you could either hear that message that now is jubilee and get free from the guilt of sin and get free from sickness and get free from lies and deceit and darkness. You could get in Jubilee by getting into Christ or you could continue on as if nothing happened. But the, 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 the Christmas message, Advent, what does Advent even mean? It means waiting for the time, waiting for the arrival. Advent has come. The Spirit of the Lord descended upon Jesus and rested upon the Son of God who was always and will always be. And when he stood before his hometown, he said, you don't have to be slaves anymore. You don't have to live under sin anymore. You don't have to live under the power of Satan anymore. Freedom, liberty, wholeness, healing, life, I proclaim to you, this is the year. The door is open. Galatians 4, verse 4 through 7 reads this. This is Apostle Paul, obviously. Galatians probably his first epistle. Apostle Paul said this, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So we're redeemed from under the weight of the law, and we receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, verse 7, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. If a son, then an heir through God. Jubilee declared in Christ Jesus is an invitation to be redeemed from the weight of the law, guilt, shame, and to receive adoption as sons. And if sons, heirs. By which we, the spirit comes upon us by which we can cry, Abba, Father. Jubilee, the fullness of Jubilee found in the Son of God. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet?